It's Friday, October 21st, 2022. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. A hundred years ago, Pennsylvania's forests were dominated by the American chestnut. Its nuts were a vital source of nutrition for humans and animals alike. And its wood was prized for its sturdiness and rot resistance, as well as for its usefulness in a wide range of industrial applications. By the middle of the 20th century, the American chestnut had been virtually wiped out by blight. Early attempts at developing blight-resistant varieties failed, and the species seemed all but doomed to extinction. But thanks to the persistence of long-term breeding programs and some late-arriving innovations, American chestnuts are poised for a comeback. And with newly funded mineland reforestation projects in the works across Appalachia, there's now a real opportunity to restore its populations where they're needed most. The nonprofit Green Forests Work is at the center of a wide-ranging effort, which also includes PEC, to re-establish healthy native woodlands on former surface mining sites. Michael French is Director of Operations for Green Forests Work, and he's a nationally recognized expert on American chestnuts and the effort to restore them. You may have seen him quoted extensively recently in The New York Times. He is our guest on this episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning and talk a bit about what the American chestnut means to North America, to Appalachia particularly, uh, whether that's ecologically, economically, culturally. Why does this particular tree loom so large, so to speak, historically in this part of the world? Okay. Wow. Uh, I hope you have a long show because it was formerly um, Appalachia's most important nut producing tree and one of its most valuable timber producing trees um, across the Appalachian region from, you know, extending from Maine all the way down into Georgia. Um, prior to the chestnut blight, there were billions of American chestnut trees and Unlike a lot of our other nut producing trees, um, like walnuts, uh, beech, oaks, hickories, which flower early in the spring, American chestnuts flower in June and early July. So they're not affected so much by inclement weather, late freezes, late frosts, things of that nature. So every year they would produce this huge, reliable, abundant nut crop that was consumed by mice, turkey, deer, bears, people. Um, chestnuts roasting on an open fire really used to be a way of life across Appalachia where school kids and people would go up into the woods and collect chestnuts and store them in sacks over winter. Railroad cars full of chestnuts were shipped to the cities where holiday shoppers would buy them freshly roasted on the street from local vendors. Um, it was just an incredibly important nut producing tree because it did produce that reliable annual nut crop every year that really affected the entire food web. It was not just, you know, the primary consumers that were out there, the mice and bears and those things eating the nuts themselves, but also because you had more mice, you would have more snakes, more owls, um, things of that nature. And as far as a timber tree, um, at one time, most of the poles um, harvested east of the Mississippi were made from American chestnut wood because its wood was lightweight, it was strong, it was rot resistant, even when in contact with the soil. So people used its wood for virtually everything from telegraph poles and telephone poles, railroad ties, barns, houses, 
furniture, um, you know, virtually anything could have been made from American chestnut wood during that time. And just because it was so abundant as well. Um, the wood was, like I said, lightweight, it was strong and rot resistant. So a lot of times it was used for split rail fences um, and just other things. So it goes from being one of the dominant tree species around here, like incredibly important economically, to being all but non-existent within a pretty short period. You alluded to the blight. Uh, can you explain what happened to the American chestnut population, when and how, and how has that loss affected the region since then? Yeah, so as people were bringing Chinese chestnuts and Japanese chestnuts into the United States um, for orchard production, um, having yard trees where they could eat chestnuts off of. Um, they also brought with them a fungus that Chinese and Japanese chestnuts had evolved with. They had a resistance to it. Um, but our American chestnuts had never been exposed to that fungus before. So it was kind of like smallpox or influenza with the Native American populations. Um, the Native American chestnuts had never been exposed to that fungus before. They had no resistance to it. And it was really first described by a forester at the Bronx Zoo named Herman Merkel. Um, in 1904, he wrote about this orange fungus that was on the chestnut trees at the Bronx Zoo. And after they had gotten the fungus and he noticed it, within several weeks, the leaves of the chestnut trees had all wilted and they had died above where the blight infection occurred. And what the blight fungus does is once it gets into the living tissue of the tree, um, it cuts off the circulation above wherever that wound occurs. So if you think about a tree, most of the center of that tree, it's just heartwood, it's dead wood where it had grown up before. And the living tissue of the tree, um, you know, the xylem and phloem, basically the vasculature of the tree is just the outside of that tree. So what the blight fungus would do is it would infect the tree and it would work its way around the tree entirely so that it would cut off the circulation. So you wouldn't have water coming up from the roots. You couldn't send nutrients down to the roots. It would just cut off the circulation and everything where that blight infection occurred would die, but it would leave the root systems of the chestnuts alive. Um, but once the blight got here, um, they started producing spores and it spread like wildfire. So from the time of where it infected the trees in New York City at the Bronx Zoo. Um, it spread from New York down through Pennsylvania northward into Maine and Southern Canada. So by the 1950s, the entire range of chestnut across the Eastern US had been infected with the blight. And during that 50 year period, um, we lost billions of trees out of the forests. And people in a lot of areas, and rightly so, felt like the forests were dying um, because on the ridge tops and other areas where, where chestnuts made up maybe 25% or even more of the forest, um, all of those trees were lost. And some of the Scottish farmers who had deliberately bought the highlands and higher elevation sites where chestnuts were dominant so that they could fatten up their hogs on the chestnut crop, um, once those chestnuts were gone, they knew that their way of life was gone as well. So they didn't have that free fodder for their hogs and they sold their farms and moved off and you know went into other endeavors because of it. So it was just a, a huge loss to the entire Appalachian region. You know, I, I said that chestnuts roasting on an open fire used to be a way of life. Well, you know, that's no more, but it's something that, you know, people are definitely working hard to bring back. And that's what we're here to talk about today. And I think like where it gets really interesting is the way in which 
these same imported Asian species that are responsible for introducing the blight to North America in the first place could actually be kind of the key to restoring the American chestnut. And that's where, where you come in and all the, the partners that you're working with. Tell me about the restoration effort that you and Green Forest Work are involved in, who else you're working with, where that effort is at today. Well, Green Forest's work, our mission is to restore healthy, productive forests on formerly mined lands across the Appalachian region. So we work wherever there is coal surface mining and where there is no longer an obligation on the part of the mining company, federal government, state government, or any other entity to do reforestation practices. Um, We come in and we provide technical and financial assistance to landowners and public land managers Um, like with the U.S. Forest Service or state park systems, state wildlife agencies, um, and just private landowners as well to restore healthy, productive forests on their formerly mined lands. And because where the mines are located, um, which is usually high elevations where it was economically feasible to surface mine for coal, a lot of those areas would have had a chestnut component to their forests. So where we're restoring shortleaf pine, upland oak forest types down in Kentucky and Tennessee, or a mixed coniferous deciduous forest up in Pennsylvania, um, for most of those forests, chestnuts would have been a component. So we love to include those in the mix that we're planting out there. Um, Even though we're planting, you know, 20 or 25 different native species as a part of our projects, chestnuts would have been a component of that. And one of our partners that we've been working with for many years now Um, is the American Chestnut Foundation. And their sole mission is to restore American chestnut throughout its former native range. So what they started doing was um, they created a breeding effort to develop a tree that is 15 16 American in character and 1 16th Chinese in character. So what they were wanting to do is develop a tree that would have all of the growth and competitive characteristics of American chestnut but retain blight resistance, the disease resistance from the Chinese ancestor. And they actually took over from a breeding program that was started by the US Department of Agriculture back in the 1920s and 1930s, but was discontinued sometime around the 1950s when they realized that they didn't have a tree that would um, basically replace American chestnut throughout the forests. So what the American chestnut did as they looked at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's breeding program and said, hey, they had a great idea of breeding disease resistance into an American type tree, but they had kind of taken it the wrong direction. And we think that we could improve upon that. So if you take an American chestnut and cross it with a Chinese chestnut, you'll get a tree that's half American and half Chinese chestnut. It should have half a level of disease resistance from the Chinese parent and half of the American characteristics. If you take those trees and cross them back to another American chestnut, you'll get trees that are three quarters American, one quarter Chinese. So you would grow all of those up in an orchard, inject them with the blight fungus, try and kill off as many of them as you can. But the ones that would still have that half level of disease resistance and the best American characteristics, you would then cross back to a different American chestnut, creating trees that are seven eighths American, one eighth Chinese grow all of them up in an orchard, try and kill off as many of them as you can with the blight fungus, repeat the process again, creating trees that are 15 16th American, 1 16th Chinese, inject all of them with the blight fungus, try and kill off as many as you can, but the ones with that high level of disease resistance and good American characteristics, you would then intercross at that stage with another 15 16th 
um, chestnut that still has that half level of disease resistance. So if you take two 15-16s trees with a half level of disease resistance and cross them together, grow all of their offspring up in an orchard, inject them with the blight fungus, kill as many of them as you can, um, you can select for the ones that hopefully got a copy of disease resistance from each of their parents, but would still have that um, mostly American characteristics. They'd be about 94% American in character at that time, but with a high level of disease resistance. And those are the ones that the American Chestnut Foundation thought would be a good starting point for the restoration program to see if they still had the competitive ability of American chestnut to grow fast and outcompete oaks and hickory, um, black cherry, yellow poplar, all the other native trees that we have in the forest, but a high enough level of disease resistance where they could, um, you know, still compete against the other trees even when they're under some pressure from the blight fungus. So they started planting those trees um, sometime around 2010, and they're continually improving the product every year by roguing out the trees that don't have a good level of blight resistance and things of that nature. So um, whenever possible for our restoration projects on the mined lands, you know, we like to include those American chestnuts in there if we can. So I mean, what you just described is not high-tech genetic engineering. It's just kind of good old-fashioned selective breeding over, over many generations. Is that uh, I imagine that's a little bit slower going then. Is that why this this has been ongoing for close to a century now? And why is it that we uh, have now apparently reached the point where you, you maybe have something viable? Correct. Yeah, it is a much slower process. Um, you know, we're lucky that chestnuts flower at a young age. So sometimes at five or six years, they'll start producing um, male and female flowers. They'll producing pollen and nuts and things of that nature. But it still takes, you know, several years to get through one generation of breeding. Um, but there is another program underway at SUNY ESF where they have taken a gene from wheat and inserted it into an American chestnut to give it a fungal resistance. So as the blight fungus is infecting a chestnut tree, it's um, releasing oxalic acid which helps to break down the plant tissues and allows the fungus to digest it and move throughout the vascular tissue of the tree. Well, what they're doing at SUNY ESF is they took a gene from weed, which is oxalic acid oxidase. It breaks down that oxalic acid. So they inserted that gene into the American chestnut tree so that as the blight is releasing the acid, the tree is releasing an enzyme that breaks down the acid and is basically taking the ammunition away from the blight fungus. It doesn't kill the blight fungus, but it just really hinders its ability to be pathogenic on trees. Um, but because chestnuts are a nut product and something that people consumed all the time, for those trees um, to be released and deregulated, it'll have to undergo deregulation through the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And because it is a GMO, a genetically modified tree, there are some people that are going to be opposed to it. And there will be some places where it probably won't be allowed to be planted because of forest certification standards. Um, some public lands would probably be off limits, you know, nature preserves and others as well. But um, that's kind of a parallel effort into getting a disease-resistant American chestnut back out into the forest. 
Uh, I want to come back to uh, mineland restoration, since that's the area where you know your work converges with what some of the work we've been involved with in PEC by way of the Appalachian Regional Reforestation Initiative, and broadly, you know, bringing more tree cover back to Pennsylvania, but in particular on abandoned minelands. You talked a bit about how there's this sort of I don't know, happy accidental overlap of areas where American chestnuts would have grown and areas that have since been surface mined. Again, it's interesting how like the the coal mining didn't directly cause the die-off, but once again, the reclamation and restoration of these lands is also instrumental to the effort to bring them back, right? So uh, could you talk a little bit more about why AML is so well-suited for an effort like this and particularly those sites that have been reclaimed since uh, since 1977? Yeah, so there are really three categories of mined lands in the Appalachian region. There are the active mines where the mining operator is required by law to meet certain reclamation standards and you know restore the land after they're done mining it. Um, but then there are the abandoned mined lands. Before the Federal Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act was passed in 1977, lands prior to that law fall under the AML category or abandoned mined lands. But after the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act was passed, um, the focus of it really was human health and safety and water quality parameters. So when they passed the law, they were looking to eliminate the landslides that were occurring throughout Appalachia on some mined lands where boulders were coming down hills, sometimes going through people's houses and killing them. Um, damaging roads and property. And also a lot of the mines were, you know, causing a lot of water quality problems with acid mine drainage and sedimentation of streams. You know, there was a lot of erosion coming off of these areas. So the federal law, the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act was looking to address those issues. And they weren't really thinking about reforestation on the top of their mind at the time that the law was passed. So when mining companies were you know, looking to comply with the law, a lot of the mines after the law was passed, they started compacting them heavily to eliminate the landslides, to make sure that material wouldn't move. And they were seeding aggressive grasses and legumes to green everything up, prevent erosion, things of that nature. But when they did so, um, with all of that compaction and the aggressive ground covers and legumes, trees really couldn't compete in those situations. You know, the roots couldn't extend easily into the soil. They were outcompeted for nutrients and light and water by the aggressive grasses and legumes. So tree planting failures became really common after the law was passed and mining companies largely went away from using forest land as a post mining land use. So they took about 750,000 to a million acres across the Appalachian region that were forested before mining and converted them into these non native grasslands, which was suitable under the law because the mining companies said that you know, after the law, it's going to become hay pasture land or unmanaged wildlife habitat or some other post mining land use that was allowable under the law. So Green Forest's work started working to address those areas where there was no longer a, an obligation on the part of the mining company, federal government, state government, or any entity to do further reforestation. And because it's, you know, such a huge issue across all of the states, um, when we work in certain regions, we reach out to other like-minded partners who have compatible missions like um, Pennsylvania Environmental Council, uh, Susquehanna River Basin Commission, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, Foundation for Pennsylvania Watersheds, Arbor Day Foundation, One Tree Planted, American Forest, all of these groups. And we kind of bring them together 
to really forward this reforestation effort on mined lands throughout the region. Did that answer your question? Yeah, amply, thank you. And actually to, to expand on that a little bit, in addition to the sort of ecological suitability of these kinds of sites, largely by virtue of the partnerships that you just mentioned, there are now a lot of you know other sort of practical advantages to this approach that have nothing to do with biology necessarily. And I'm thinking about how, you know, when you said when Smacker was passed, they were not thinking about reforestation. Well, people are thinking a little bit more about reforestation these days. And as a result, there are some new opportunities out there. Could you uh, paint that picture for me? Talk about what opportunities maybe are available that weren't in the past, uh, particularly in the way of funding. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go back to your previous question, I think I missed the American chestnut part of it, but a lot of the mine lands are entirely suitable for American chestnut and a lot of other imperiled species that have come over here. So, and wiped out like American elm, um, we're losing hemlocks to hemlock woolly adelgid, things of that nature. So um, in restoring these areas, we are restoring the native forest type that was there prior to mining. But to address the question that you just got to about, you know, this kind of resurgence and people wanting to do reforestation projects. Um, yeah, with climate change on the forefront of everybody's minds, you know, every time you turn on the TV, there's another company out there wanting to do reforestation. And, you know, people have talked about the Trillion Tree Campaign. You know, there's an organization out there spearheaded in North America by American Forests, the Trillion Tree Initiative to plant, restore, and conserve a trillion trees by 2030. Um, well, if you look globally where those trees could go, the Appalachian region has some of the highest um, potential for doing that reforestation. And the mine lands really fit in with that well because they were forested before mining. Um, we feel that if they're not being used for some higher and better use right now, that they should be reforested again. And so there are funding opportunities out there um, currently, you know, for private landowners, the Natural Resources Conservation Service has programs in place through the Environmental Quality Incentives Program where they can apply for funding through the U.S. Department of Agriculture Natural Resources Conservation Service to install um, conservation practices on private lands that are going to benefit society as a whole. And then you have NGOs out there like Green Forests Work, PEC, and these other teams of folks working for reforestation who they can also work with. And we can try to raise funding to um, help them achieve their reforestation goals as well by applying through grants, working with philanthropy, corporate donors, things of that nature um, to help private landowners and public land managers out you know, with their reforestation goals as well. So there's sort of a, a two-phase process, I guess, to reintroducing American chestnuts. And, and the first one is the breeding and the genetic half of it. And the other part is actually getting those trees in the ground. What does that look like, again, on particularly on former mining sites? What goes into the site preparation, the planting methods? Are you, you, know, are you also introducing complementary or companion species along with those seedlings? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so for those areas that you know, were reclaimed after the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act was passed. They were compacted, um, aggressive grasses and legumes were put into place. And then a lot of times you get invasive exotic species that will move in there, like autumn olive, bush honeysuckle, multiflora rose, things of that nature. So what we have to do 
is go in and deal with the unwanted vegetation first. Um, a lot of times we'll use small bulldozers to clear that out of there, get everything basically back down to a blank slate. And then because the lands are so heavily compacted, we'll bring in a bulldozer with large ripping shanks on the back of it that'll rip the ground down to three or four feet deep. Um, and essentially that's like killing your garden, except on a forest scale. It loosens everything up. It allows rainwater to infiltrate the soil and be more slowly released from the system. And when we plant the trees, it allows their roots to extend easily so that they can grow much more vigorously. It promotes gas exchange in the soils, so you get a healthier microbial community. Um, mycorrhizae, beneficial mycorrhizae can move into those areas much more easily and you get a better and more robust and diverse um, microbial community on the lands. And then we come in and we plant a diverse mix of native trees and shrubs that belong in that region. So like I mentioned earlier, if we're in um, Southern Kentucky and Tennessee, we might be restoring a shortleaf pine upland oak forest community where we're working in Pennsylvania, it might be a Northern red oak, Eastern white pine, red maple forest community. And it would have oftentimes an American chestnut component as a part of that. So we'll purchase one-year-old and two-year-old bare root seedlings from state nurseries, commercial nurseries to get the right mix of trees that we want. And then if the American Chestnut Foundation has some of their um, blight resistant chestnuts available, we like to incorporate those into the mix as well. And then we have volunteer groups and professional tree planters come out and plant tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of trees with us every year. It does seem that it's really important to take that approach because you're not just putting trees on the land for the sake of it or says so that somebody can claim, you know, uh, carbon sequestration benefits or whatever it is, uh, whatever their motivations are for wanting to push reforestation. It's not just reforestation for its own sake, but it's the restoration of native landscapes. And it's in some ways we're in a situation that's analogous maybe, and tell me if you agree, to, you know, after SMACRA, the push was just get it planted, just get something growing on there. It'll look nicer, it'll be more stable. And that's kind of as far as the thinking went. And then, you know, 40 years later, uh, here we are. So how has the thinking changed in terms of the importance of really intentionally cultivating a native landscape? Yeah, so I agree with you entirely. Yeah, the the intent of the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act was good, and they did a lot of really good things with the law. Um, but yeah, just in greening everything up and using non-native species, you know, they used to plant millions of autumn olive out across these landscapes. Um, but those non-native species just don't benefit native pollinators, native wildlife, our birds, our mammals, the way the native species do, the things that they've evolved with to consume and use throughout their life cycles. Um, you know, Doug Tallamy um, at University of Delaware um, has, you know, been really outspoken about the benefits of native species. And he looked at caterpillar usage of um, white oaks versus Bradford pears. And he did a little study counting every caterpillar at shoulder height or below on a white oak. And he found hundreds of caterpillars on those. And then he did the same thing with the Bradford pear. And he found a single caterpillar. And on the white oak, you know, there are many families of different caterpillars out there, which is crucially important for certain bird species that'll eat thousands of birds or thousands of caterpillars just to raise a clutch of their young every year. So without the caterpillars, you don't have the birds. So 
native species, you know, provide so many benefits to the entire food web that we're now looking at this as a holistic way of restoring these landscapes, you know, ecologically. So yes, carbon is a, a part of what we do, carbon accumulation, and we're increasing the carbon accumulation rates on those lands. But it's really a small part of what we're doing because we're also looking at the biodiversity um, crisis that we're facing and, you know, the problems with colony collapse disorder with honeybees and other pollinator populations declining from monarchs and, you know, a lot of our other um, lepidoptera, our butterflies and moths and things that are out there. So when we go in and we restore these lands, we're trying to put back the forest that was there prior to mining and the forest that really belongs there. So it'll provide all of the benefits to society that forests provide from, um, you know, air filtration because they have a greater surface area than grasslands. They're filtering particulates out of the air. Um, they're cleaning the air. They're sequestering additional carbon on these lands. They're also filtering the water trees as they're growing, they uptake so much water out of the soil, they're utilizing that and then, uh, you know, releasing it out into the atmosphere through their leaves. So if you do have problems with um, acid mine drainage or metals in these areas, it can help to lock those things in place by utilizing so much of that water that it's not being released to the downstream watershed. So you get these water quality improvements that, it, you know, reforestation affects not only water quality, but also water quantity. So you get those benefits, but then also there are future benefits out of this work as well from potentially harvesting timber in the future or non-timber forest products. Um, so there's just so many benefits to, to restoring the entire ecosystem the way we're trying to do it. And yeah, and so many of those benefits connect back to climate. One facet of that concern, which again, maybe is driving some new interest in these type of reforestation projects, that is climate is. Uh, but one facet of, of the climate situation that a lot of people are grappling with is food security becoming a bigger concern for a lot of people. We started off by talking about how chestnut trees were a major food source for people in this part of the country once upon a time. Could we end up in a situation where chestnuts are again helping to feed people in this increasingly kind of precarious environment for food production? Could, you know, could, could I grow an American chestnut in my backyard and, and have uh, nuts to eat? Well, that's the hope, definitely. Yeah, I mean, and there are chestnuts out there that, you know, as they were bringing Chinese and Japanese chestnuts over here, there are a lot of different um, types of chestnuts that you could purchase and plant in your yard and they'll do just fine. They can tolerate the blight. Um, but we're hoping that, yeah, that these American chestnuts will be able to be put back out into the forest and increase that food resource so that chestnuts roasting on an open fire will hopefully become a way of life again, you know, across Appalachia in generations. And there are other trees that we're planting that are a lot of times underutilized by people and could be um, on some of these areas. We plant, you know, persimmons and occasionally we plant some pawpaws and things of that nature and other nut producing trees like black walnuts and shagbark hickory, which are you know, suitable food sources for people as well. And if you think about it, before Appalachia was a coal-based economy, it was a forest-based economy at one time, you know? So um, yeah, food security is definitely a part of what we're doing as well. And even in conversations about, you know, sustainable food production, I hear more and more emphasis on perennial crops. You know, it's that much more better for the soil long-term, better for carbon sequestration than to be planting and, and harvesting the same things year after year. 
Um, that seems to be part of it, too. I also want to expand on what you were saying about the economic potential again coming back. Uh, you know, again, back in the day, it was it was valuable as timber. It was valuable for manufacturing, for, for, for tanning and, and, and charcoal production and things like that. Some of those are no longer really part of the, the mix economically. But tell me a bit more about how you see chestnut trees, again, being a source of economic value for Appalachia. And then actually really, maybe more importantly, what does that look like as a sustainable effort? What would it take to to do that in a sustainable way? Well, you know, we hope that we'll just get them back there out there as a part of the forest community again. And then chestnuts were renowned for how fast they would grow. So they were a fast growing tree. They had a wood that was rot resistant, even when in contact with the soil. So a lot of times now people are using Southern yellow pine and treated wood. Um, if they're building playgrounds or something like that, that's gonna be in contact with the soil. Well, with American chestnut, you probably wouldn't need to treat it. You know, you just cut them, they're fast growing and then you build from them. So it would help there. So yeah, it would definitely be a benefit for loggers and people who are looking for that type of wood that's you know in contact with the soil, rot resistant. So you could build decks and playgrounds and you know, use them for railroad ties and electric poles and everything else. And for nut producing, you know, there are chestnut orchards out there right now in Appalachia where um, usually those are a Chinese or some other variety because they have a larger nut um, and they still retain some of the sweet flavor of American chestnut. But um, yeah, people could, you know, go out there and plant entire chestnut orchards and maintain them and such, manage them and such, and, you know, restore that part of the economy through that restoration effort. Well, Michael French with Green Forest Work and uh, formerly American Chestnut Foundation, I believe. Thanks for being on Pennsylvania Legacies. It's been really a fascinating, informative conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Learn all about the history of the American chestnut and the plan to restore it in Appalachia on the Peck website. There you can stream all of our past podcast episodes, including several looking at the Appalachian Regional Reforestation Initiative and Peck's reforestation program. Find our complete back catalog along with videos, articles, and more on these and related topics at peckpa.org. Again, the website is pecpa.org. Thanks for joining us for this podcast episode. We'll have another one in just two weeks. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening.